This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. If you want to make a little child happy, what do you do? You give him an ice cream cone with double scoops of ice cream. If you want to make a kid really, really, really happy, you give him two ice cream cones, each with double scoops of ice cream. You want to watch a kid go into full-blown panic mode, give him two full ice cream cones with double scoops of ice cream in each, and as he's holding both those ice cream cones, bring out a third one with three scoops. Okay? (laughs) You got to see the kid's panic. He's like, he doesn't have an extra hand. What's he going to do? How's he going to work this whole thing out? He's in full-blown panic mode. That's how I feel right now. Because this week's Parsha, Parsha's told us, is so chock full of good stuff. Oh, all the goodies, all the goodies. This is like CVS the morning after Halloween. We've got all the candies and they're all at half off, but you can only take so much home at once. So this week's Parsha, we're going to learn about uh, a lot. We're going to learn about Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau, their Genesis stories. We're going to talk about the fighting in the womb. We're going to talk about the selling of the firstborn rights. We're going to talk about Yitzchak going to Gerar. And there was like this whole weird story about digging wells and stuffing up wells. And of course, last but not least, we are going to cover the story of Jacob stealing the blessings from Esau. We are not going to do it in order. But we're going to try to get it all in, and it's going to be oh so beautiful. So please strap yourselves in, if you can, and get ready for a good time. You do not need coffee. This will be enough electricity to carry you through. I want to, By the way, before we get started, I want to thank all of you for coming on to this class. Both those of you who are live on Zoom right now, and especially those who keep their camera on, so we know we're talking to people, but if you can't, don't worry about it. I also want to thank the amazing folk over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for their amazing uh, support of my teaching Torah and my ability to do this as they've been doing for so many years. And they are an incredible organization. Check them out at partnersdetroit.org. And of course, the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website, and it's got one bajillion hours. It's a real thing. One bajillion hours of Torah knowledge. If you don't believe it, just download their web, their app or go to their website and start listening to their Torah hours. If you are ever, ever able to finish all their Torah, you call me back and I will give you a full refund for everything. Full refund. Okay, by the way, it's free. Amazing. Those people, the Shimon, Shimon and Yaakov, and Shimon and Ruben Kolyakov, the brothers who started that thing. Man, oh man, I want like, I want seats. I, I, I want seats even like 20 rows back from them in heaven. You know what I'm saying? These guys started this, this Torah anytime, and now there are literally millions of hours of Torah classes listened to because of their endeavor, their holy endeavor. I also want to mention, if you like listening to it on various other platforms, I am on Apple Podcasts, I am on Spotify, uh, I believe I'm on Stitcher, uh, or anywhere else you get your podcast, Google Play Podcast and Android Podcast. We're there under the name... Burnham on the Parsha. So if you'd like to see it there, you can get it there as well. And now, let's get in. By the way, just a quick shout-out to my friend Don over there, who's driving a big rig. There's a shortage of truckers right now in this country, but he's single-handedly trying to make sure we get what we need when we need it. And he's listening to the class while driving. Yasher Koch, Don, you're an inspiration to all of us. All righty. So, here we go. We're going to start today's class. We're going to start with um, 
boom, 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 boom. We're going to start with the selling of the firstborn rights for $400. Okay, here we go. Let's go into uh, a few details of the story. This story is found in Genesis 25, 27 through 34, also known as Bereshis Parak Chav Hey, Sukkim Chav Zion through Lamed Dalid. We're going to read it in English and save the Hebrew, not because it's not important to read in Hebrew, of course it is, I just want to save us time. The lads grew up. The lads we're referring to, of course, are Yaakov and Esav. Esav became a skilled trapper, a man of the field. Yaakov was a man without fault, a man of the tents. So Yaakov was sitting and studying Torah in the tents, and Esav is a skilled man, a trapper, a man of the field, a hunter. Yitzchak loved Esav because he ate of his trappings, but Rivka loved Yaakov, right? So Yitzchak loved Esav because Esav would, would get him, you know, a uh, game. He'd get him hunting. He'd bring home animals for him. Yaakov, Vayazed Yaakov Nazid. I like the words how this is translated. Yaakov was simmering a pottage, which is something that I do quite frequently. I simmer pottages. Whenever I have nothing else to do, I'm like, let me go down to the kitchen and simmer a pottage for a few minutes. Anyway, Yaakov was simmering a pottage uh, when Esav came in from the field, v'hu ayef, and he was exhausted. And Yaakov, and Esav says to Yaakov, ha'aliteni namin ha'adom ha'adom azeh, give me please from that red red. Okay? Give me some of that red red, for I am exhausted. Therefore, he was called Edom. Therefore, he was called Red. The nation that came out of him was called Red. Yaakov said, Sell me your firstborn rights as of this day. And I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. you want. You want food? I'll give you food, no problem. But we, <laughs> little quid pro quo. You know what I'm saying? You give me something, I'll give you something. We can work out a deal over here. Everything's on the table. Right? So... He says, give me your firstborn rights. And Yaak and Esav says, whatever, I'm about to die anyway. What do I need this Bechoro? What do I need this firstborn rights? I'll give it to you. Yaakov says, swear to me as of this day. Esav swears to him, and he sold his birthright to Yaakov. Yaakov then gave Esav bread and a pottage of lentils. Wait, 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 wait. How did bread get stuck in there? That was not part of the deal. This may or may not be the source for when you go to a nice restaurant, they often put bread on your table before bringing you the meal. Was that invented by our forefather Yaakov? We will never, ever know. But we do know that even though he had promised him a pottage, he actually bought him bread first. Some of our commentators say that the reason why he brought him bread first was if later in years, Esav would say, well, I was dying of starvation. So I, of course, I said, I, would say, I, said, I said anything. I would have said anything. Yaakov was like, wait, 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 no, 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 you weren't dying of starvation because I made sure to feed you bread first and then you still wanted the pottage. So if you were really dying of starvation and the only reason why you were willing to sell your birthright for a bowl of pottage was because you were dying of starvation, as soon as you had the bread, you should have been like, okay, I'm out, I'm sorry, I don't want any pottage, no, deal is off, Let's do, you know, I'm going to return it, give me my deposit back, we're all done. But you didn't, I gave you bread first, you were not dying of starvation and yet you still sold your birthright for a bowl of pottage. Anyway, he ate and drank and got up and left. Thus, Esav scorned the birthright. Now, let's take this story apart, one piece at a time. Idea number one. What exactly was so exhausting for Esav on that day? So the Medrash on Beratius, the Medrash uh, um, Rabbah, Parak Samach Gimel, Chaf Tes, 6329, says... And Esav came from the field. What does the field mean? It means that he was intimate 
with a betrothed maiden, as it says, and the woman was in the if if a man basically forces himself upon a betrothed woman in the field and the man overpowers her, then she's not guilty; only he's guilty. So the, there's a, this concept in the Torah called a gzera shava. A gzera shava means where you see the same words being used in different places, and we say this is a hyperlink. A hyperlink, so for example, let's say you read Wikipedia, and you say, um, I want, you know, let's say I want to discover about Puerto Rico. So say, you know, Puerto Rico, no, forget Puerto Rico. Let's say you say you want to learn about Panama, the country. Like maybe you want to go on a trip to Panama. So you're like, I want to learn more about Panama. So you put into Wikipedia, Panama. And we'll say, Panama is a country in Central America. The word Central America, you'll notice, will be blue with a highlight underneath it. The capital city of Panama is Panama City. The word Panama City will be blue with a, with a, with a link underneath it. What those things are is if you click on Central America, it will take you to a Wikipedia article about Central America. If you click on the word Panama City, it will take you on a link to the word Panama City. It will talk about how Panama has the Panama Canal. Though that word will be blue and underlinked as well. And if you touch that word... Well, if you click on that word, it will take you to an article about the Panama Canal, right? So the idea here is, is that the Torah uses, drops little hints here and there for various items, and it's trying to tell us a message about them. So here the Torah is using the word, he was coming from the field. Just say he came home. Why do you guys say he was coming home from the field? Ah, says the Medrash, the word field should be hyperlinked. To what other word field? To the word field where it describes somebody taking and grabbing a betrothed woman, a woman who's set to be married, and forcing himself upon her in the field. So this is what Jacob, what Asaph was doing that day. Asaph had violated a, a young woman. And he was exhausted. What does that mean, he was exhausted? Because he killed somebody, says the Medrash. As the verse says in Jeremiah 4.31, my soul is exhausted because of the murderers. So this word, which is a strange word, why do you got to tell us his physical state when he came home? Again, the Medrash says there's a hyperlink over here. Take that hyperlink and go over to Jeremiah, discover what this exhausted refers to. It refers to murder. But we're not even done yet. He had a pretty busy day over there. Rev Barachia uh, and Revchia the Great also said, he also stole, right? Why? Because the Pasuk says, in Ganavim Ba'ulach, and if, if the robbers will come to you, and here it says, the Esav was Ba'menasadei, came from the field. What does that mean, came from the field? Came refers to robbery. So the, the Medrash basically breaks down for us what Esav was busy doing that day. He was busy violating somebody, he was busy killing somebody, and he was busy stealing from somebody. That is a busy day. You know, he, he did not clock out at 5 p.m. Oh, no, 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 no. He stayed late at the office that day, right? He was doing what I call killaging, right? Killaging is a nice little com- conjunction word combining pillaging and killing. So that's what he was busy doing. He was busy taking long strolls in the field with other people's wives. And now he was killing people. He was stealing. And now he's starving hungry. He comes home from a long day of work. And lo and behold, Yaakov is making a pottage. Hmm, a pottage. Why was Yaakov making a pottage? Does this refer to Chaland? Is this the first reference of Chaland in the Torah? Well, possibly, because the pottage was made with lentils. And the sages tell us, like uh, people often make Chaland with beans and lentils, the, the, the sages explain to us that he was making a special food, because generally, there's almost never in the Torah where the Torah tells you what was the menu. There's a few times. For example, when Avram serves 
the guests, it says that he served them um, he, he served them a young calf. The Medrash tells us further that he served them each an entire tongue. Uh, he also served them uh, cake breads, okay? So we know what was on the, on the menu over there. But generally speaking, we don't have the menu of most meals uh, in the Torah. By the way, if you ever go to a... <clears throat> if you ever go to a presidential library... So the word presidential library is a little bit of a misnomer. Really, it's a, it's a, it is a, a, a museum to that particular president. However, it's called a library because they store an enormous amount of documents. So much so, I was at the presidential library for Ronald Reagan in the Simi Valley in California. Very, very beautiful, amazing. They've got a full 747 in a hangar there. The Air Force One was retired and brought to the Simi Valley in pieces and reassembled over there so you can actually walk through Air Force One. It's an amazing, amazing museum. It's massive. So besides all the things that you can see, you can see the outfit he wore to his first inauguration. You can see the outfit he wore to his second inauguration. You can see all these different gifts that were given to him by various dignitaries and heads of state, which he was not allowed to keep for himself, becomes part of the, you know, the property of the American people. Um, he also, though, there's also an archives there. And in the archives, every word he uttered pretty much this entire eight years that he was president, you can find over there. And every time there was a menu, I mean, literally, because I'm sure in the White House, I haven't eaten a lot of meals in the White House. Uh, and I've only seen, I, I know that the menu when uh, Donald Trump hosted the uh, football champions was like burgers and fries and McDonald's or Arby's, whatever he gave them. Uh, yeah, that was a weird meal. But anyway, um, so... If you go to the White House, I assume there's usually a printed menu for what is there for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Because they have, obviously, a full chef and a full staff. You can literally find the menu of, like, what did Ronald Reagan eat in the White House on February 23rd for lunch? You can go into the, the presidential library and find that. But in the Torah, it really doesn't record much. You know, it doesn't say, and Avram sat down for corn on the cob with a little bit of spiced dried meat. It, it doesn't say that, but here it's talking about what Yaakov makes, which of course is saying, let's learn about this. Why is the Torah telling you what Yaakov was making? And Rashi explains he was making red lentils because Avram died on that day. And the custom is to serve people who are mourning lentils because lentils are circular. And it's supposed to remind the person who's mourning that life is circular. And just like this person was just Put into the ground, they will rise again. There will be a Tchinas HaMesim. There will be a resurrection of the dead. They are alive in the next world right now. They're still alive. They're still there. I was recently at a funeral. And um, I had a moment. I was, I was speaking to the widow. And I mentioned, I said, like, I mean, the, the husband was very young. And I said, you know, he'll still be there. He's going to be there watching your kids play basketball. He's going to be there you know, at your children's sporting events. He's going to be there at the weddings. He's going to... And, and, and she, unfortunately, she said to me, she's like, well, we, I, I hope so. Don't, we don't really know, Rabbi, do we? And I'm like, no, we do know. Like, it, it's so sad that this woman had been poisoned by rabbinical figures who will say things like, well, we don't really, really know what happens in heaven. Like, if that's what you believe, don't be a rabbi. Because one of the 13 articles of faith is that we believe in the eternality of the soul. We believe in Tchias HaMesim. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's like literally part of the articles of faith. And it's so sad to me that a woman who's grieving and who would actually find great comfort in knowing that our tradition for thousands of years has taught 
Now the soul lives on, and the soul will be at her children's weddings, and the soul will be at her children's basketball games, and the soul will be at her children's graduations. She would find so much comfort in that, but unfortunately she has rabbis who aren't willing to tell her what Judaism actually has been believing for so many years, because then things get complicated for them, because then they have to believe all the other things that Judaism has told them for so many thousands of years, and they don't want to believe that. So they just say things like, well, we don't really, really know, which is robbing this poor widow of whatever comfort she could have. Anyway, we believe in the eternality of the soul. That's why we serve lentils at a, at, at a, a, at a mourner's house. Who's mourning today? J, uh, Yitzchak was mourning the death of his father, Avram. Why did Avram die that day? Because God told Avram he was going to die at a ripe old age with a smile on his face, so to speak. He was going to die with like a smile on his face. And Yitzchak and, sorry, Yaakov and Esav were about to turn 13. Now Yaakov was about to go continue sitting and learning Torah, but Esav was about to do all kinds of bad things. Like we kind of read, the first day he turned 13, as soon as he got his license, you know, it's like, you know, people when they turn 21, they go and buy a beer. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh wow, as if you never bought a beer before in your life, right? But people when they turn 18, they go and buy a beer. You know what I'm saying? Like, here... Asaph turns 13 and is like, that's it, I'm a man now. What does he do? He kills, he steals, he hurts people, he violates people, right? He's, he's kind of like, I'm an adult now. I can do whatever I want. My parents can't tell me to go to bed at 9 p.m. anymore. I'm going to go kill, steal. Like, you know, it's his self-expression coming out. So Hashem told Avram, you're going to die with a smile on your face. If, if Avram saw his 13-year-old grandson, Asaph, going off to such terrible activities, he, he wouldn't have died with a smile on his face. So God took him early, five years early, so he shouldn't have to experience his son doing this. So now Yitzchak is mourning his father, Avram. And Yitzchak's son, Yaakov, stays home to cook a pottage, to cook lentils, so they can properly mourn for their grandfather and recognize the eternality of the soul. So that is what's going on. Esav comes in and says, Pour some of that red bread down my throat. And therefore the Torah says, Alkain kara shemo Edom. Therefore they call him Red. Now this is a very weird part in the Torah because the Torah is telling a narrative. It's in the middle of telling a story. It's telling the story of what's going on between Yaakov and Esav. And then suddenly in the middle, it gives us like a historical fact. It's telling a story and Yaakov did this and Esav did this and Yaakov did that. And then it says, therefore his people will be called Edom. Which is more like you're going from a narrative to like a more of a historical outsider telling, this, telling like a, an outside fact that's got nothing to do with the story. And whenever the Torah does that, it's telling you, look, focus, I'm doing something different, notice it, ask why. That's, what are we trying to learn from this? Number one. Number two, how do you name a nation a color? Right? Right? How do you name a nation a color? We believe that your name has a lot to do with who you are as a human being. My parents named me Yehuda Leib. Yehuda means to give thanks. And I love, I love giving thanks. I, it's, um, I can do it five times during dinner if dinner is good, or maybe even seven times. If someone sends me an email and says, hey, uh, Leiby, I just wanted to check, do you know what time we're meeting? I'll send them back. Oh, yeah, we're meeting at 7 p.m. Thanks. <laughs> I'm used to dictating to my phone. Thanks, comma, new line, Leiby, right? So, like, I write thanks, and that's my salutation. That's how I leave. Thanks, Leiby, right? What am I thanking them for? They asked me about a time for something. I gave them the time or the address. Why am I thanking them? Because that's, that's, that's part of my DNA. Thankfully, my parents, thankfully, I appreciate my parents so much for doing this. They, they named me Lebi, Yehuda. They may name me to give thanks. That's part of who I am. When you, when a name is incredibly indicative of what something is, 
As a matter of fact, there are great rabbis who can literally look at a name and tell you about the person whose name they're looking at. I can tell you that I was once involved in a business deal with somebody who was acting in a shady way. And I went to a rabbi of mine and asked him about it. He says, get me that person's name. I got him that person's name and the rabbi is like, get out now as fast as you can. And he was 100% right. Right? Somehow he's able to see in that person's name. There's a whole Gemara about this with Remeir traveling with sages. But the bottom line is, your name is a very, very important component of you. How do you name an entire nation? An entire nation, we call them red. Al-Kain, Karashimo, Adom. Therefore, we call them red. How could a red, a color, be the essence of a people? Okay, so the idea is like this. Asav comes into the room and he says, pour me some of that red, red. Color is the lowest level of description for anything. All it is, is it just tells me what it looks like on the outside. It doesn't even tell me what it is. Imagine I were to say to you, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you go to Home Depot and pick me up a red? You're like, a, a red what? I'm like, just, just go pick me up a red. <laughs> You're like, what do you mean? A red wrench? A red hammer? A red pipe? A red sandblaster? A red lawnmower? What do you want? Give me some of that red. Red color is the most base level description. It gives you almost nothing about anything. But it is the easiest to notice from across the room. From across the room, I can see there's something red over there. I don't even know what it is. I don't care what it is. Oh, look, red. Give me red. Asaph is a person who does not care to investigate. Asaph is a person who does not care to get deep into anything. I want something. I see something. Give it to me. A woman is betrothed to somebody else's to somebody else. She's in, about to get married to somebody else. I don't care. She looks beautiful to me. I want her. I come into the kitchen. It smells good. Give me red. Whatever. I don't even know what it is. I don't care. I don't. I don't want to take the time to actually bother myself to figure out what it is. Give me red. He's such a base level human being. He so doesn't think about anything on a consequential level. Now, of course. The first level is what color it is. That you can see from across the room without any investigation at all. Then you come closer. You see, what is it? It is lentil soup. But then if you get even deeper, you say, why is it? And in this case, you would say, why is it? Wow, my brother is making lentil soup to help my father mourn properly and to help my father remember the eternality of the soul, which is so ironic because what does Yaakov say to him? Yaakov says, if you don't recognize anything on any deep level, you can't have the firstborn. The firstborn rights is a very, very holy and important, important role. It's the role of the one who's going to be the Kohen in the, in, in the temple. It's the role of the person who's going to end up doing all the service to God. We can't have a guy doing all that if you don't even care enough to figure out what the next step of something is. If you're such a base level, so shallow, you can't be the high priest. So what does Yaakov say? If you want red, if that's how you look at the world, I'll give you red. I'll give you whatever you want. I need to take back something from you that you have that requires real introspection, that requires real sensitivity. The Kohanim are going to be like the rabbis of the people. They're going to help people repent. They're going to help people rekindle the relationship with God. I can't have you do that if you're not the kind of person who wants to introspect even a little bit or just think a little bit. So Yaakov's like, all right, I'll give it to you, but you gotta, you got to give me back that, that firstborn. 
We can't have you with your finger on the, fo- on, on, on the nuclear football. You are a person who blurts things out. You don't think. You don't spend time on anything. It, I'm nervous for you to have the nuclear football of spirituality. The priesthood is the nuclear football of spirituality. It's what controls spirituality. Yaakov's like, I don't want that to be in your hands if you're such a base level person. So I'll give you your red, red, no problem. You want, you want red, red? I'll give you red, red. You give me, you, you take your shallow stuff. I'll take the deep stuff. I'll take the, t- the stuff. Being a rabbi requires sensitivity and ability to listen very carefully to what other people are saying and the ability to think before you talk and the ability to really think about, should I say this or not? Is this going to help or is this going to hurt? There's so many layers and levels of what you got to go through to be a Kohen, to be a leader, to be a rabbi. He's, Yaakov's like, I'll give you your red, red. You got to give me the, the Bechorah. You got to give me the firstborn rights. And what does he say? He says, I'm going to die anyway. The temple's going to be in a couple hundred years from now. What do I need it for? So it's so ironic because Yaakov is making lentils to show the eternality of the soul. And Esau takes the lentils in exchange for the Bechorah, for the firstborn rites, because he doesn't believe in the eternality of the soul. He's like, I'm going to die anyway, and then after I'm dead, I'm just, doing, I'm just pushing daisies. There's no spirituality, there's no spiritual realm, there's no continuity, there's no my soul will live on, there's no my soul will live on through my children, none of that. I'm, gonna, I'm here now, I'm gone tomorrow, there's nothing left of me, let me just take whatever I can get now. If I can get a little bit of extra red, red, who cares about firstborn rights? So that's what he, that's what he, that's what he sells. All he can see is red. Therefore, his nation forever will be called red. His nation will forever be reminded that they are a people who are not willing to look beneath the surface. They are the people who would like to just say lines, say phrases that may not be meaningful, may not be, may be dangerous, may be very, very hurtful. Ideas that don't resonate with other people, but they make you feel good. Like, let's defund the police. What a ridiculous statement to say. And everybody who lives in a neighborhood that would be affected deeply by a, a, a unfunded police is begging and saying, don't defund the police. We just had an election. We saw what happened in America. There's no interest in defunding the police. But people will mimic these words. It makes them feel good. They don't think about, wait, wait, wait. If we defund the police, what's really going to happen? Is crime really going to come down? Or is crime going to skyrocket? Let's look at other places when there was less police control. Let's look at places right now that are hampering their police forces and seeing what's going on in those communities. Places like Seattle and San Francisco. What's going on? Oh, there's rampant shoplifting and violence and homicides are up. And all kinds of assaults are up. And stores are closing down right and left because they're being vandalized on a regular basis. Wait, maybe it's not a good idea. But no, 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 we can't. We don't think deeply. We just want to blurt things out. Whatever makes me feel good. Give me some red, red! I say defund, you say police! I say defund! Ridiculous statements. Makes you feel good for today, right? Yeah, you're, 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 you're a warrior. Asav, your nation will be red. Your nation will be people who only care about whatever makes them feel good today, this minute. They won't be people who think deeply. Oh, the marriage! It's just, it just continuing the patriarchy or the matriarchy, right? The traditional family unit needs to be dismantled. Are you out of your mind? The traditional 
marriage unit is one of the most powerful things. Every demographer can show you that people who live in traditional marriage units have higher rates of success in, in every form of life. You want to break that down? Because you, you want to live without a marriage family unit. You want to just be able to do whatever you want. You don't want to be tied down. And, and the girl that you've been stringing along for the last few months has been saying, hey, we really, you really should think about going, you know, some commitment here. And you don't want to commit. So you're like, nah, that's just the patriarchy. All this, all this monogamy, it's just old ways. And you make fun of it. Or maybe you're a girl who can't get a guy to commit to her. So then you just, instead of saying, wow, what's wrong? Why, what am I doing wrong that I can't get a guy to commit to me? Maybe I'm doing wrong. Maybe I'm acting in a way that's not really conducive of building long-term relationships. No, I just rail the system and break down the system. Oh, the matriarchy. The monogamy is the problem. The family unit is the problem. It needs to be dismantled. Let's look at all those dismantled families. How, how are those working out? All those children being raised who have no idea who their father is. How's that working out? Are they doing better, statistically showing? Are they having more stable lives? Are they staying out of prison more frequently? Do they report lower incidences of drug use and abuse? No, quite the opposite. But let's just throw those things out there because it makes us feel good right now. Al-Kain, Karashimo, Adom. Therefore, God says, you... The people, the descendants of Esau, who don't want to think deeply about what you're doing, who just want to grab and take whatever you can grab and take, whether it belongs to you or doesn't belong to you, someone else's wife, someone else's life, someone else's property. I just want everybody else's stuff, and I don't want to work hard for it and get it the right way. You are the people who will be called Edom. So that is level number one of the story that's going on in this week's Torah portion. We have Yaakov, who's producing lentils because they're supposed to speak of the eternality of the soul and the importance of getting life right because life will continue for all of eternity. And it's so important to think about how we live our lives and what messages are we giving on. Because not only are we physically going to give them over to our children and grandchildren and so on, but we're going to put out spiritual energy that will be in the world forever. And we need to make sure we're doing it right. That's Yaakov's message to the world. Asa's message to the world is just grab whatever you can. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't think deeply. Give me some of that red, red. Therefore, he will be called red, red. That is the overall concept of this week's Torah portion. But now let's see some other examples of it coming out. There's a, another story in this week's Torah portion. Excuse me. Yitzchak comes and he digs up all the wells that his father Avram had dug. His father Avram dug a bunch of wells in Philistine territory and the Philistines had filled them up. This is Parak Chavav. Sukim Tes Vav through Chavbez, Genesis 26, 15 through 22. And all the wells that the servants of his father Avram had dug up in the days of Avram, Sitmum Plishtim. They, they plished him, the Philistines had filled them up, and they filled them with dirt. So you dig and you dig and you get the water all the way down. You got to dig 20, 30 feet down and you get the water. Now you have this delicious cold water. And the Philistines came along and they filled them with dirt. So what happens? Um, Yitzchak goes somewhere else and he redigs the wells. Okay, 
And he calls them the same names that Avram had called them. Now, let me ask you this question. Avram clearly was not living there anymore. Why do you fill up his wells? Use his wells. He left behind wells. Wells are a very valuable thing, especially in a country where six months out of the year, it doesn't rain. So if you want water, and you're not piping it in from the Kinneret or the Mediterranean with the desalinization plants, because they didn't have those in those days, the only way to get water in those days was through wells. And you have somebody who built you incredible infrastructure, and now he's not here. Avram is not here. Why in the world would you take his wells and fill them up with dirt? It's like, imagine, imagine uh, when there was a peace treaty, actually there wasn't a peace treaty, imagine when the Israelis unilaterally withdrew from Gaza Strip, imagine the Israelis left behind all their hothouses. In Gush Katif, in that area where Gaza is today, was an incredible agricultural miracle. They used to produce tremendous amounts of greens and lettuces in these very sophisticated hothouses. And people paid for those hothouses to be left behind when the Israelis left. The Israelis were going to take the hothouses and all the technology and all the drip technology and the, and the sprinkler systems. They were going to take them with them to wherever they were going because they were being forcibly evacuated from the homes they had been in for so long. But American philanthropists said, no, 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 we're going to pay for you to leave those hothouses there because we want the people of Gaza to have a way to make money. These hothouses were producing millions of dollars of produce every year. To which the Israelis were like, okay, if you're going to pay us, we'll leave them behind. We want, we want the Gazans to have some kind of prosperity. Their prosperity actually is, is a good thing. So they left behind the hothouses. And what happened? As soon as, the, as, soon as they, they took over Gaza, as soon as the Israelis pulled back from Gaza, right around Tisha B'Av of 2005, and then the Arabs came, and the first thing they did is they destroyed the hothouses. What are you doing? These hothouses could yield you millions of dollars a year. What are you doing? Use the hothouses. Don't destroy them. Avram left behind. Right? By the way, the land of the Philistines is literally where Gaza is. Right? Avram left behind a bunch of wells. Use the wells, Philistines. Use the wells. What are you filling them up with dirt for? Good question. Good question. So I once heard an idea from, uh, I heard about, I don't remember who I heard it from, but I know the, the originator, it was from Rebetzin Heller. I think my mother told it to me in the name of Rebetzin Heller or something like that. And she was talking about the idea of wells. How wells play a very prominent uh, role in, in the Torah. For example, when Eliezer is looking for a wife for Yitzchak, where does he go? To the well. When Yaakov is looking for a wife, where does he go? To the well. When Moshe is looking for a wife, where does he go? To the well. A lot of people are finding their spouses around wells. Now, of course, back then they didn't have bars with happy hour. That might be why everyone went to the well. (laughs) But the bottom line is, um, what is the idea of the wells? And Rebetzin Heller said over, and I I don't know in whose name she said it over, but she said... What is a well? A well is a piece of dirt, and then you start digging. And it's very hard work. It's strenuous labor. The first couple of feet is not so hard, but then the earth gets cloddier and more moist and thicker, and you're digging and you're digging. 
and you dig half a day and you're down only four feet, but then you start digging more and you get another five feet down and dig and dig and it's hot and it's, and it's, I mean, now it's actually getting cooler as you get closer to the bottom and you're throwing up all the dirt. You got to send it up in buckets or whatever it is. And you dig and you dig and you dig and you finally get 12 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet down. And suddenly the water starts gurgling up and now you have a source of delicious, cold, clean, refreshing water that will be available for you and your family for many, many years to come. Ain Mayim Elatora. There's no water other than Torah. Water is always used as a metaphor for Torah. And what is the saying to us? If you want to achieve greatness in Torah, if you want to achieve greatness in wisdom, you've got to dig and dig and dig. And it's not easy. You're not going to find the answer right away. And you're not going to get it right on the first shot or the second shot or the third shot. But you're going to keep pushing. You may get it wrong the first time. You keep pushing through. You get it right. Eventually. But it takes a lot of work. Guess who's not willing to put that work in? All those redheads. All the people who just say, give me some of the red red. They don't want to do the work. They don't want to push through. They don't want to put in the effort. They want whatever comes easily. But the problem is, is that they can look over here and they can see that the people who are willing to put in the real work, the people who are willing to develop that effort and put in the time and effort again and again and again and again, those people are sitting there and they're drinking tall glasses of cool water. Ah, and it reminds them of the value of the people who work really, really hard to get there. The people who keep doing the right things even though it's not working out for them the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. It's very frustrating for me if I want to do the wrong thing, if I want to just do what's easy. But I look at the person who's working hard and he's enjoying the fruits of his labor. It's very hard for me to do that. So what do I do? I fill him up with dirt. I deny his accomplishments. I make fun of him. I say, oh yeah, look at that family. Oh yeah, they're just a... The patriarchal, matriarchal, nuclear family that needs to be dismantled. But, but they look pretty happy over there. Their kids are pretty stable. Things are, I think it's good over there. No, they're a bunch of racists. They're a bunch of traditionalists. They're a bunch of, I'm going to tear them down as much as I can because I want to do whatever I want to do. But if I see people doing the right thing and getting it right and actually enjoying life, that makes me feel like I'm missing out. So I got to tear them down. I got to fill up their wells instead of saying, let me go drink from their waters. Let me go become like them. Let me go do the right thing and live the life that they're living because they look so happy. I'd rather fill up their wells with water. I'd rather deny myself the ability to yield millions of dollars of profit rather than recognize, wow, these Israelis, they brilliantly put together this system of irrigation, of making the desert bloom, that I can take advantage of all these hothouses here. It's such a bizarre thing. It's so, anti, it's so anti-your own well-being. But when you're pushing to support an ideology, you've got to destroy everything that doesn't work out with your ideology. You've got to destroy everything that doesn't fit the narrative. If the narrative you want to tell is that you can get life easy, you don't have to work hard, but then you see that the people who actually work hard and dig and dig and dig and build wells, they have it so much better. They've got a never-ending source of fresh, cold water I don't want that to be the message. I'd rather self-sabotage and destroy my ability to get the cold water than recognize that it's worth it to put the effort in.
I'd rather self-sabotage the, the ability for me to have a happy monogamous marriage, but I've got to work for it by making fun of marriage, making fun of, ah, making, making wife jokes. Let's just make fun of, yeah, wives, a bunch of nags. Just make a bunch of jokes out of it, right? Yeah, and then you don't have to work to developing your marriage and working hard to get a marriage and to sustain a marriage, which takes real work. But if you have, it's amazing, the most amazing, affirming thing. As long as you can convince yourself, ah, wives, such nags. Just keep telling yourself that. Even though you're denying yourself the ability to have the greatest power and benefit. So that is the story the strange, strange story we see here. Avram digs wells. Avram is the kind of man who devotes himself and his entire life to helping other people. And he's so happy for it. But the Philistines can't countenance that. They fill up all of his, all of his success. They want to just blot out from memory. Let's just fill up all of his wells and walk away. And then, of course, Yitzchak comes back and digs the same wells. And he calls them the same names. Because guess what? The recipe for success is always going to be the same. The recipe for success is always going to be dig and dig and dig harder. And then appreciate when you finally get what you're supposed to get. Appreciate that even though you worked so hard, but that God enabled you to get the fresh, clean water after you dug 20 feet down. The, the roadmap to success is always the same. So Yitzchak digs up the same wells that his father dug up, and he names them the same names. Because in between, people could try to make fun. People could try to tear down what you're trying to, trying to build. But the path to success is always going to be the same. This is a story, this whole Parsha is a story about people who are looking to see the red red, or are looking to see the easy life over the proper life. Let me tell you an amazing story about the difference between the external value of something and the internal value of something. The people who lived in Jerusalem before the modern day Jerusalem, we're talking about people who lived in Jerusalem in the late 1800s. It was called the old Yishuv, the old Yishuv, where people were settled. And it wasn't a lot of people, and they were very, very, very poor. Often they, support, they were supported by the largesse of various Jewish benefactors like the Rothschild family and other families that would support them because they wanted always there should be a Jewish presence, but the support would be spotty. Sometimes it wouldn't come through. Um, you know, hunger was very, very common. People were very, very poor. So one day, it's a Shabbos afternoon, and there's a little boy named Yitzchak Eisenbach. He's 12 years old. He's walking on the street. On Shabbos, and what does he see? He sees something shiny. Hmm, what's that? He walks over, and it's this gold, I will call it a doubloon, I don't know, you know, it's more of like a pirate money bill. It's like a gold, a gold dinar, okay? A gold one. And he can't believe his eyes. That gold dinar could support his family for a year. The problem is, you can't pick up money on Shabbos. So, what's he gonna do? So, Yitzhak Eisenbach, 12 year old boy, very smart boy, he's like, you know, I'm just gonna stand here. I'll stand here. The, the, the money was like in a little depression in the ground. I'll put my foot, oh, here's the money to the depression. I'll put my foot over the depression. And I'll just stand here until Shabbos is over. And then I'll take my money. And I'll go home. And I'll tell my parents. They'll be so proud of me because I'll just have one, this gold coin could support the family for a year. So he's standing there. It's a boiling hot summer, summer day. And the sun is beating down on him. 
but he is copacetic. All is good. He may be sweating. He doesn't mind. Now, there's an Arab youth who passes by, and he notices this Jew just standing there <laughs> in the middle of nowhere just by himself in the heat of the day. So, all right, he doesn't make, make much of it. But the same Arab comes back. He, maybe he was going to the grocery store, whatever it was. He comes back a little while later, and that kid is still standing exactly on that same spot. Something's fishy. So the Arab teenager comes over to this little kid. He says, yo, kid, what are you doing over there? And the kid's like, uh, nothing, I'm just, just chilling. He's like, it doesn't look like you're chilling. Chilling. You've got sweat dripping down your face. What are you doing over there? Go inside, go indoors. He's like, no, nah, I'm good, I'm good. So the Arab realizes that something is up. So he then pushes the boy, okay? And suddenly they see the gold coin. They both see the gold coin. Now at that moment, little Eisenbach, 12-year-old Eisenbach, was still faster and more nimble than this big, heavy bully. He could have just grabbed the coin and ran home. Mind you, the prohibition of carrying a coin on Shabbos is not a biblical prohibition. But it's, for, it's forbidden, rabbinically. So he couldn't pick up the coin. And the Arab kid says, ha ha! He grabs the coin and he runs off. Little Eisenbach is absolutely dejected. He can't believe it, right? So he, 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 he can't even go home. He's so, so depressed. He had this coin. He was dreaming how he was going to support his family for a year. He was going to come home with it on Saturday night after Shabbos. And everyone was going to, he was going to be the hero of the family. So he goes to the Chernobyl-based Medrash. There was a, a base Medrash of Hasidim who had emigrated from Chernobyl. And he goes to the Chernobyl-based Medrash. And... Uh, He's depressed. He won't even. He davens mincha like in the women's section, which was at that time empty during the day. And um, there's the little shalashudas and shul. This kid won't even come in for shalashudas. He's just lying there in the in the women's section. So the rabbi notices something's up. And after the rabbi comes, he makes abdallah. He calls his boy in. He says, "Boy, what's going on?" And the kid just like pours out his heart. He says, "Look, rabbi. He's like, I, I found this coin today, and I could have supported my family for a year, and then." This Arab bully came and he pushed me off of it and I still could have grabbed it, but I didn't want to because it was Shabbos and I didn't want to pick it up. And now I don't have the money. So the Chernobyl Rav sits there and he says, you know what? So that was an incredible mitzvah that you just did. You could have supported your family for a, a year. And not only that, it's not even a biblical prohibition. It's a rabbinical prohibition. And you'd let it go because you wanted to keep Shabbos. He says, look, son, opens up his drawer of his desk and he takes out a, a coin that's the exact same coin. It's the same gold dinar. He says, I will buy the mitzvah that you just got for this gold dinar and you can go home and support your family. And 12-year-old little Yitzhak Eisenbach thinks about it for a second and he says, wait a second, no, 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 no. If you're buying it for a dinar, I ain't selling it for a dinar. No thanks, I'll take the mitzvah. Mind you, today... Many hundreds, a hundred something years later, the Eisenbach family is one of the most prominent, amazing families. That Yitzhak Eisenbach had children and grandchildren and great grandchildren. Today, there are literally the, the joke they say in Yerushalayim is if you're in, a, in like a real Yerushalmi neighborhood and you, you know you throw a rock anywhere, it's going to land on an Eisenbach's uh, you know window or whatever because there's so many Eisenbachs. I had a Rebbe of mine who was an Eisenbach who used to work with the prisoners in prison. They're one of the most amazing, prestigious families in, in, in Yerushalayim today. That was started by a boy who understood that all, that's, all that glitters isn't necessarily gold. 
So that is what's going on. There. There's somebody who doesn't see red, red. He doesn't see gold, gold even. He sees there's an internal value here to the mitzvah. I worked so hard to do that mitzvah. It was so difficult for me. But I did the right thing. And that mitzvah is way, way more valuable than even gold. Let's go back now to the beginning of the parsha, the fighting in the womb. Rashi tells us something interesting. By by the children were fighting inside of her. She didn't know she had twins at the point. So Rashi brings the medrash that says, They were struggling with one another. They're fighting over the inheritance of two worlds, this world and the next world. Now, I happen to be a therapist. I don't know if you guys know that. I have a degree in social work. I'm a therapist. Social workers are really good at like, let's find the peaceful medium, okay? I've got an idea over here. You've got Esav and Yaakov. Esav is this physical, earthy man. All he wants to do is, you know, eat, drink, rob, steal, pillage, killage, whatever it is. Jacob wants to sit and learn Torah all day. I've got a little solution over here. Yaakov, you want, you're fighting over two worlds, this world and the next world. Yaakov, you take the next world. You take Olam Haba, where you can sit and study Torah with God for all of eternity. Esav, you take this world. You get all the stakes. You get all the gold. You get all the things that you want. And then call it a day. Why do you got to fight, guys? Why do you got to fight? Come on. Can't we get this all together? But no. This is such a deep idea. Yaakov needs both worlds. Yaakov's end goal is to get to Olam Haba, to get to the world to come, to be able to just bask in God's divine glory. But the way he gets there is by subduing this world. You can't get to Olam Haba without fighting, without challenging yourself. This world is the training ground. This world is where you put in all the effort. This world is where you're tempted again and again and again, and you don't fall for the temptations, and you become a great person. That's how you earn the world to come. The world to come only has value when you fight for it, and you struggle to get it, or else it's just not really the same value at all. Anything you're given without fighting for it is not the same value as something you fought for. So Yaakov needs this world to be here. He wants this world to be able to subdue it so that he can enjoy the next world. But listen to this. Esau needs both worlds too. He wants to subdue the world to come so that he can enjoy this world. Because as long as you know that there is a right way to live, as long as you know that there is a proper morality in the world and you're not living it, you feel guilty, you feel uncomfortable, you get a guilty conscience. And he doesn't want that, so he's going to fight to make fun and destroy religion. You look at all these atheists, the Richard Dawkins, the Stephen Hawkins, all they do is make fun of religion. They make fun of it so much because they're trying to convince themselves that the way they live their lives with lack of morality is okay. But the only way I can believe that my immoral life is okay is if I can destroy any sense of religion, any sense of, of sensibility. Who does this come from? Mein Kampf. Hitler. In a book called Selected Quotes from Adolf Hitler. Sorry, it's called Hitler Speaks by Hermann Rachning. He writes, The struggle for world domination is between me and the Jews. All else is meaningless. The Jews have inflicted two wounds on the world, circumcision for the body and conscience for the soul. I come to free mankind from their shackles. More, he writes, The Ten Commandments have lost their validity. Conscience is a Jewish invention. It is a blemish like circumcision. Says Hitler, they refer to me as an uneducated barbarian. Yes, we are barbarians. We want to be barbarians. It is an honored title to us. We shall rejuvenate the world. The world is near its end. Listen to the madman speaking. Brilliant madman, Hitler. 
He's saying, I don't want a conscience. And the Jews represent conscience in the world. They're the ones who are doing it right and living happy, beautiful lives. So I need to blot them out of the world so that I can be a barbarian and do whatever I want without feeling guilty about it. The same battle that is occurring in the 1930s in Germany is occurring between the Jew and the descendants of Edom. Hitler is from the descendants of Edom. He's from the descendants of Esau. Hitler is saying, I don't want a conscience. So I need to subdue the Jew. I need to get him out of the picture because he's living life righteously. I need to fill up his wells. I need to fill them up with dirt. I need to make it like they don't exist. Because as long as we can see a Jew who's doing chesed and living with God and is happy about it, and is supremely serene and is joyful, I can't live my barbaric lifestyle guilt-free. So I need to kill him and get him out of the picture so that I can live guilt-free as a barbarian. Yaakov really wants the world to come, but the way that he gets the world to come, if you want to be able to enjoy the world to come, you've got to fight for it and earn it. And the way you earn it is by subduing your earthly urges in this world. Asaph wants to enjoy his earthly urges in this world, just wants to do whatever he wants, grab anybody he finds attractive, do whatever, steal, kill, whatever it is. But in order to do that, he's got to subdue the world to come, because as long as he's reminded that there is a, a, a greater eternality to the soul, as long as he's reminded that life has meaning, that there's reward and punishment, and he can't enjoy what he's doing so much. So both of them want both worlds. Both of them want to enjoy one, but need to subdue the other to get there. That is the story come in. That is the story of this uh, Parsha. And by the way, what happens at the end of the Parsha? We talk about Yaakov stealing. Yaakov stealing the blessings from Esau. Sorry, from, yeah, Yaakov stealing the blessings when he gets the blessings from his father. He didn't steal nothing. He bought the firstborn rights. Now, mind you, in his incredible sensitivity to his father, he never told his father, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but your older son sold me his firstborn rights for a bowl of chalent. He didn't tell it to his father because he didn't want his father to feel bad. His father loves Esau. Could you imagine what a blow that would be for, y- for Yitzchak to hear that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup? So Yaakov doesn't tell his father, but when it comes time to actually collect on that, when it comes time for the firstborn blessings to be given out, Yaakov goes in and gets them. Is he stealing? If I can go right now quietly upstairs and I go into my room and I, I don't want to start whispering because there's somebody else who does that a lot. He whispers, we're going to win. Okay, anyway, um, if I go upstairs right now and I quietly creep into my bedroom and I open up my wardrobe and I take out two suits, my favorite suits, and I run away with them. Am I stealing? No, those belong to me. They're my suits. Yaakov owned the firstborn. Now granted, Yitzchak didn't know that because Yaakov never ratted out his brother and said, hey dad, by the way, your other son that you love so much, yeah, he's such a base, shallow person that he sold his entire firstborn rights for a bowl of soup. Yaakov never told him that. So Yitzchak thinks that Esau is still the firstborn, even though he's not. Yaakov is the firstborn by deed and title. And he goes and gets those blessings. And what happens, my friend, what happens? At the end of the parsha, Esau is crying like a baby. Because those who squander their life and their opportunities when they're younger, chasing after the red red, telling themselves that all of life is meaningless, 
and we're going to tear down the patriarchy and we're going to tear down the family unit because it doesn't make a difference. All those people who tell themselves all sorts of crazy things when they want the license to do whatever they want while they're young, when they get to the point where they're old and they see the world for what it really is, they're filled with shame and regret. Tearing, wrenching, searing regret. That's what Asaph has at the end of his life. Not the end of his life, in the middle of his life. Where he realizes, what did I do? I threw away my life. I was a son of Yitzchak. I was the firstborn child of Yitzchak. I could have had so much meaning. I sold it for a bowl of lentil soup. And he's crying and bawling. What a fool. I can't believe what I did. Thus ends all tyrants. Thus ends all the people who throw away their lives for momentary pleasure. But as for us, we do the opposite. We are the children of Yaakov. We are the children of those who are willing to put in every bit of effort, who don't just see things on the surface level, but say, what is this, and what will it do for me, and why should I embrace it? Why should I run away from it? We are the people who look below the surface. We are the people who are willing to keep digging to get to the waters, the sweet waters of Torah, and we'll fight for it, and we'll dig, and we'll dig, and we'll dig. And if someone fills it up, we'll dig it up again. Because we know that when we actually get there, we will have the greatest, the most refreshing water to feed us and our children for generations to come. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.